Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Here I am, sir. When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 163 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, Level, Logistics, and Training. As a young boy, my early love was aviation. I built model airplanes, I'd uh, try to fly some, and read aviation books. In high school, I thought rocket technology would be very interesting. Then uh, I enrolled in a ROTC program at the University of Wisconsin, and from there, I uh, went down to uh, Pensacola to start flight training and managed to get an appointment to the Naval Academy and graduated there in 1952. I got my wings, I think it was February of 54, uh, sent to a squadron. Turned out that this squadron developed and sent to various aircraft carriers uh, night fighter teams. And so I became uh, on a team called Team Jig, and we deployed on the Shangri-La, went to uh, Westpac about uh, 1955-1960, Finally came back, and after I got back to the squadron, I applied for and was accepted uh, to test pilot school at Patuxent River, Maryland. NASA, at that time, was looking at putting a man in space, and I became one of the second group of astronauts with NASA. I managed to get into four very interesting flights during my career, Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8, of course, and Apollo 13. I believe that I was the first person to go into space four times by the time I retired. Apollo 8 has to be the high point of my career. On December 24th, we orbited the moon for the very first time, and we looked back there and saw the ancient old craters on the far side. The most impressive thing we saw was the Earth. I, for some reason, put my thumb up to the window and realized that I could hide the Earth behind my thumb. And I thought, everything I ever knew, everything that that exists to my knowledge is behind my thumb. That was Jim Lovell reflecting about his life in his own words. James Arthur 
Lovell, Jr. was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1928. Lovell was the only child of his mother, Blanche, who was of Czech descent, and his father, who died in a car accident in 1933. For about two years, he and his mother resided with a relative in Terre Haute, Indiana. His mother then moved them to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he graduated from Juneau High School and became an Eagle Scout. As a child, Lovell was interested in rocketry and built flying models. From the fall of 1946 to the spring of 1948, he attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison for two years under the Flying Midshipman Program, where he joined the Alpha Phi Omega Fraternity. While Lovell was attending pre-flight training in the summer of 1948, the Navy was beginning to make cutbacks in the program and cadets were under a great deal of pressure to transfer out. There were even worries that some or most of the pilots that graduated wouldn't have pilot billets to fill. This threat persisted until the later outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. Lovell attended Annapolis for the full four years, graduating as an ensign in the spring of 1952 with a Bachelor of Science degree. He then went to flight training at Pensacola Naval Air Station from October 1952 to February 1954. Lovell married Marilyn Lily Gerlach, the daughter of Lily and Carl Gerlach. The two were high school sweethearts at Juneau High School in Milwaukee. Marilyn was initially hesitant about dating Jim because he was two years older than her, but the two became inseparable after their first date. She transferred from Wisconsin State Teachers College to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., so she could be near him while he was training in Annapolis. They married after his graduation from the Naval Academy on June 6, 1952. They had four children, Barbara, James, Susan, and Jeffrey. Due to her husband often being absent from the home because of training and missions, Marilyn was in charge of taking care of their household and four children. Their home life during the Apollo 13 mission of 1970 was portrayed in the 1995 film Apollo 13. Actress Kathleen Quinlan was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her performance as Marilyn Lovell. In 1999, the Lovell family opened Lovells of Lake Forest, a fine dining restaurant in Lake Forest, Illinois. The restaurant displayed many artifacts from Lovell's time with NASA as well as from the filming of Apollo 13. Lovell's son, James, or J. Lovell III, was the executive chef. Lovell sold the restaurant to Jay and his wife in 2006. The Lovell family announced that the restaurant building and surrounding property was on the market in February 2014 and the restaurant closed on April 12, 2015, and the property, but not the memorabilia, 
was auctioned on April 22, 2015. Upon completion of pilot training, Lovell served at sea, flying F-2H Banshee night fighters from 1954 to 1957. In January 1958, he entered a six-month test pilot training course at what was then the Naval Air Test Center at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland, along with Charles Conrad and Wally Sherall. Lovell graduated first in his class. Later that year, Lovell, Conrad, and Sherall became three of 110 military test pilots selected as possible astronaut candidates for Project Mercury. Sherall went on to become one of the Mercury 7, but Lovell and Conrad failed to make the cut for medical reasons. Lovell, because of a temporarily high belly rubin count in his blood, and Conrad for refusing to take the second round of invasive medical test. Lovell continued for four years at Patuxent River as a test pilot and instructor using the sign Shaky, a nickname given him by Conrad. In 1962, NASA needed a second group of astronauts for the Gemini and Apollo program. Lovell applied again and this time was accepted into NASA Astronaut Group 2, as was Conrad. Lovell was selected as backup pilot for Gemini 4, which put him in position for his first space flight three missions later, as pilot of Gemini 7 with command pilot Frank Borman in December 1965. The flight set an endurance record of 14 days in space and also was the target vehicle for the first space rendezvous with Gemini 6A. Lovell was later scheduled to be the backup command pilot of Gemini 10, but after the deaths of Gemini 9 Prime crew Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, he replaced Thomas P. Stafford as backup commander of Gemini 9A. This again positioned Lovell for his second flight and first command of Gemini 12 in November 1966 with pilot Buzz Aldrin. Lovell was originally chosen as command module pilot for the backup crew of Apollo 9, which was planned as a high apogee Earth orbital test of the lunar module, along with Neil Armstrong as commander and Buzz Aldrin as lunar module pilot. Lovell later replaced Michael Collins as command module pilot on the Apollo 9 Prime crew when Collins needed to have surgery for a bone spur on his spine. This change reunited him with his Gemini 7 commander, Frank Borman, and lunar module pilot, William Anders. Delays in construction of the first manned lunar module prevented it from being ready to fly on Apollo 8 planned as a low-Earth orbit test. It was decided to swap the Apollo 8 and Apollo 9 prime and backup crews in the flight schedule so that the crew trained for the low-orbit test could fly it as Apollo 9 when the lunar module was ready. The original Apollo 9 medium-Earth orbit test was replaced with a lunar orbital flight, now Apollo 8. 
Borman, Lovell, and Anders were launched on December 21, 1968, becoming the first men to travel to the moon. As command module pilot, Lovell served as the navigator using the spacecraft's built-in sextant to determine its position by measuring star positions. This information was then used to calculate required mid-course corrections. The craft entered lunar orbit on Christmas Eve and made a total of 10 orbits, most of them circular at an altitude of approximately 70 miles, for a total of 20 hours. They broadcast black-and-white television pictures of the lunar surface back to Earth, and Lovell took his turn with Borman and Anders in reading a passage from the biblical creation story in the book of Genesis. They begin their return to Earth on Christmas Day with a rocket burn made on the moon's far side out of radio contact with Earth. For this reason, the lunar orbit insertion and trans-Earth injection burns were the two most tense moments of this first lunar mission. When contact was re-established, Lovell was the first to announce the good news. Quote, Please be informed, there is a Santa Claus. End quote. The crew splashed down safely on Earth December 27th. I'm going to stop Lovell's biography here because he has another flight after Apollo 8. Now, on to the Apollo 8 mission. Here's Jim Lovell speaking about the timing of Apollo 8. A scriptwriter couldn't have done a better job launching on the 21st of December to orbit the moon on Christmas Eve. To launch at the end of a very turbulent year, you know, with the Vietnam Wars going on and there were riots, it was really a bad year. Uh, to end the year for the United States on a positive note, you know, just to do things that everybody could be proud of without having a lot of controversy going on. And then to see the Earth as it really is, be able to photograph the Earth to show the people what they really have, uh, I think it was uh, very significant uh, for Apollo 8. could have happened at a better time. And that was a very good flight, too. I mean, everything worked. And then to say, of course, hey, please be informed there is a Santa Claus because, you know, if that engine didn't light, we would have been a, <laughs> a permanent monument or permanent uh, satellite to the moon, I guess, the moon to the moon. Now we recall how we got to this point. The successful Apollo 7 flight cleared the way for a U.S. moon landing in 1969. Still, a lot of flight and ground testing remained, and there would probably be surprises. The greatest concern NASA had was they had to complete three virtually flawless missions and achieve every major test objective before a lunar landing could be attempted. The odds seemed to be stacked against NASA. Here's Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Frank Borman speaking about the importance of Apollo 7. Actually, to go flying on Apollo 7, which was the precursor, and part of the decision that was made when Frank went uh, to Houston and Bill and, Ann, uh, Bill and I were still out at Downey wondering what happened to Frank, uh, was uh, the fact that the decision would go on Apollo 8 to the moon if Apollo 7 was successful. So in reality, that flight proved the improvements of the command module 
from the disastrous fire that we had in 1967. Uh, and that was the spur that allowed us to make that final decision after Apollo 7 to say, yes, let's go. Although we were training for the lunar, lunar mission prior to the Apollo 7 flight. Well, I just think that Apollo 7 was uh, one of the more uh, unappreciated flights from the public. Uh, Wally Shira was the commander. Don Isley was uh, the command module pilot. And Walt Cunningham was the lunar module pilot, though like me, he didn't have a lunar module. And Wally got a cold and was a little grumpy, and the flight controllers didn't like it. But they, they did a heck of a job. And, and just recently, uh, NASA finally came around to presenting that crew with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and I had the honor of presenting it to uh, Joe Shira, Wally's widow. But that, that was an important flight. And that flight was successful because Frank, you know, uh, spent an awful lot of time making sure that command module was safe. But, you know, John was awful generous in saying how important Apollo 8 was, and then, and then uh, Bill just mentioned Apollo 7 being so important. But in reality, every damn flight was important. You know, think, think of John Glad sitting on top of an ICBM, really in, in an aluminum inner tube, uh, because it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't hold it without air. Isn't that correct? You had to have pressure in that thing or you had to clap. So NASA's program wasn't haphazard. It didn't, just, it didn't just happen. It was planned every step of the way, and it was remarkable uh, that, it, that it worked. I think I honestly believe that God was, uh, was shining on us from the, from the very beginning. Eight days after Apollo 7 returned to Earth, Flight Director Cliff Charlesworth and his green team began the first lunar mission simulations. The post-mission assessment for Apollo 7 gave the command module a solid go. The next spaceship, in a schedule based in almost entirely on gut instinct, would go to the moon in less than 60 days. The decision to send Apollo 8 to the moon captured the world's imagination, and it was one of the biggest stories in a year of bad news from Vietnam, student demonstrations, riots at the Democratic National Convention, and a bitter presidential campaign that was won by Richard Milhouse Nixon. The Apollo 8 lunar planners had not given much thought to its impact on the outside world, but now that impact was blaring from television sets and newspaper headlines. Whatever press attention Mission Control had in the past was about to be dwarfed by a news media maelstrom. After the announcement of a lunar mission was made to the public, there was about six weeks left to meet the schedule to orbit the moon on Christmas Eve and the crew would splash down a few days later. Now the splashdown raised a big problem. The Pacific Fleet had been issued orders for a stand down during Christmas week. Its carriers would be in port at Pearl Harbor and the Navy planned to give as many sailors as possible leave. Chris Kraft was given the responsibility to solve the problem. The commander-in-chief for the Pacific Fleet was John McCain, and his son was a POW in Vietnam. No one wanted to tell him that NASA needed part of his fleet at sea over Christmas. 
Kraft decided to visit him in person at Hickam Air Force Base in Honolulu. This is how Kraft described the meeting. Quote, The next morning I put on my best suit, a new shirt, and gathered up the slides and charts I'd asked John Mayer to prepare. At McCain's office, General Houston and I were met by two rear admirals who offered us coffee. I had tea. The admirals knew what we wanted and were completely noncommittal. Finally, they took us to an amphitheater conference room, nicely paneled and with about a hundred seats. We sat down front as the most impressive bunch of brass I've ever seen, all captains and admirals and even a couple of four-star Army and Air Force generals filtered in and filled every seat. At 10.30 a.m. sharp, someone yelled, Attention! And in walks four-star Admiral John McCain, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, who's a couple of inches shorter than me and full to the brim with military bearing. Somebody said, Be seated. As McCain took his chair right down front and looked me in the eye. Okay, young man. He barked in a loud voice. What have you got to say? Neither before nor since have I stood in front of that kind of high-powered audience. McCain's eyes only left my face to look at my charts and graphs. I don't remember many of my exact words. I simply ran through the mission and told him what we wanted to do. I know that I stressed the importance of the flight and its risk and the greatness of the United States of America was about to be tested in space. Then I got to the real point. We had to land the crew in the Pacific near Midway. I'd memorized exactly how I wanted to put it. Admiral, I realize that the Navy has made its Christmas plans, and I'm asking you to change them. I'm here to request that the Navy support us and have ships out there before we launch and through Christmas. We need you. There was complete silence in the room for maybe five seconds. McCain was smoking this big, long cigar, and all of a sudden he stood up and threw it down on the table. Best briefing I've ever had, he said, again loud enough for everyone to hear. Give this young man anything he wants. And he walked out. End quote. Now let's consider the training for Apollo 8. By the time NASA reached Apollo 8, simulation technology had advanced to the point that the simulation became almost identical to the actual missions. The simulations became full-dress rehearsals for the missions down to the smallest detail. The simulation tested the crew's and the controller's response to normal and emergency conditions. It checked out the exact flight plan, mission rules, and procedures that the crew and controllers would use for the flight. The problems thrown at the controllers and the crew by the simulation supervisor prepared them for real crises that might come up in any phase of the mission from launch to splashdown. Simulation attempted to make events that could happen in real time. Malfunctions in any one of the many spacecraft systems 
trajectory problems, or failure in ground systems as realistic as possible, with hundreds of possible malfunctions and many time-critical mission events, the training opportunities were limited only by the hours and weeks available to train. Mission Control and the astronauts simulated every mission phase under a variety of normal and emergency conditions. By the time the training period for Apollo 8 ended, the astronauts and the mission control teams were thoroughly familiar with the pre-mission plan. They knew what should happen and were capable of making a correct decision to continue the planned mission or execute a mission abort under any sets of circumstances. Now here's Frank Borman on what he remembers about training. And then I'll just say one other thing and then I'll shut up. But the, the, one of the beauties of, of working for NASA at this time was it wasn't bureaucratic. It wasn't bureaucratic at all. I remember at, for one time I, when I first went out to the Apollo uh, mock-up and I flew the simulator, I pulled the, the stick back and the nose went down. Pushed the stick forward and the nose went up. I called the engineer over, North American engineer over, and I said, hey, you got the polarity screwed up on this. This is, uh, hey, look, what's happening? He said, oh, that's the way we're going to fly it. All the human engineers, human uh, effects, human resource, human factors. human factors resource. This is the way it's going to be. I said, what do you mean? I never flown an airplane like this. He said, oh, you're not going to fly the airplane. You're going to fly the target. See, when you pull back, the target will go up. And so I said, huh? <laughs> okay. So I, I didn't argue with him. He's been very proud of me. I just went over and called NASA and Houston. I said, look. These idiots have got it all screwed up. <laughs> and a half an hour later, it was changed. <laughs> they didn't have a committee. They didn't have a, a you know, a, a, anything at all. It just was changed. And that was because of people like George Lowe. Now here's a clip from both Jim Lovell and William Anders on training. Well, there were some, you know, changes of training that we obviously had to do. Uh, we had to start learning the... Uh, the, the lunar surface of the moon's topography to uh, see the various craters. And this is sort of interesting because we brought in people who were familiar with that to teach us uh, some of the initial points. Because the mission of Apollo 8 was really uh, to check the navigation uh, and to check for suitable landing spots, uh, the flat areas, the mare, or the sea, that uh, would give the people who would attempt the first landing the greatest chance of survival. And consequently, our photography and looking around at those flat areas, like the Sea of Tranquility, which Apollo 11 eventually landed on, uh, that, that was one of our missions. And that was part of our training. Uh, and also, we had to do things that, uh, in a three-dimensional effect, uh, navigation was one of them, because we were not going around the Earth anymore. Uh, we were going to have to test out uh, the navigation system on the way to the moon to see how accurate it was, and this, of course, was the, the test flight of that, of that particular aspect. No? Yeah. <laughs> why, why don't you describe the launch? Well, Frank asked me uh, to describe the I launch. I didn't ask you. I he told me to. Yeah. <laughs> you think a major general would have a little more <laughs> stroke here with a colonel. A major general <laughs> in the reserves. <laughs> But, um, of course, I was a rookie of the flight. Of course, I like to say that everybody was a rookie on the first Saturn V. 
But uh, we trained for every possible emergency that we could think of, every possible uh, environment. We had centrifuges. We did survival training in the jungles, in the desert, uh, in the ocean. Uh, we were on the centrifuge up to 15 Gs. Uh, everything you could think of. We had a thing called the launch abort trainer, which rattled around a bit, you know, and uh, Frank, whose job it was to decide whether he would abort, had a hand handle that would fire the abort system. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.